today on Ag News Daily. Yeah, if they just can't get in to plant their cash crops, I would certainly encourage them to look at a cover crop instead of leaving the field idle. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Delaney Howell flying the plane solo today, Thursday, June 20th. Mike is at the Iowa Women Landowners Conference, I believe. Hard to keep track. And Madison Honkamp, our summer intern, is counseling, being a camp counselor this week. So it is just me, folks. But there is definitely a lot to talk about, so don't worry about that. Going to have a great conversation later on in the podcast with Rob Myers, Dr. Rob Myers, who is the Regional Director of Extension Programs for the NCR SARE program at the University of Missouri, talking about a new cover crop research study that was done, essentially talking about when is it economical to use and implement cover crops. So do stay tuned for that. We had a little bit of news to go along with that today. Essentially, the USDA worked on this report with the SARE organization, and Dr. Myers will explain what that organization is later on in the podcast. But this report found that was released Wednesday that farmers are likely to see returns from planting cover crops within three years of implementing that practice if it's being used to deal with some specific things like herbicide-resistant weeds, grazing livestock, or to reverse soil degradation. So this is an interesting report because it was done at a national level and was done over a five-year period surveying about 500 different farmers, which is the largest multi-year data set that has ever been compiled to look at cover crop usage. So that was pretty interesting there, and like I said, do stay tuned because Dr. Myers, Dr. Myers will get into that quite a bit more here coming up on the podcast. To go along with that cover crop news, though, we also saw the USDA today announce that they are reversing or bringing, bringing, moving up a cover crop harvest date. We've seen Senator Thune and others asking the USDA to change the cover crop harvest date and grazing date, which was previously set at November 1st for those farmers who took prevent plant claims on crop insurance. And we've seen the agency now extend or move that date up this year to September 1st. So folks will be able to start grazing on cover crops on prevent plant acres as forage and take that a month earlier than previously allowed. So great news there. We saw Senator John Thune really push this forward. Of course, he is a senator there for South Dakota, and that's a big state that's that relies heavily on grazing. So it's nice to see the agency respond to that this year, what with having wet weather and issues with planting and, and forage issues, as Daniel Olson mentioned last week on the podcast. USDA has responded and changed that date. So good news there for producers. In other news, we have the G20 summit coming up just right around the corner here. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer said the administration is, quote, ready to engage, end quote, with China when President Trump and President Xi meet next week at the G20 summit in Japan. But he said he's really only hopeful about prospects for the deal to move forward. And he said, when it was asked about if it will actually resume or not, he said, I can't say at this point, but we're talking and we're going to meet. So that's at least a good sign there. 
He also said that he will also be present at the Japanese counterpart meeting during the G20 summit. So it sounds like the U.S. and Japan will also be chatting. We're also going to see potentially Japan and the EU chatting because of their Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. And Lighthizer said, ultimately, you know, we want to be treated like those competitors and we're going to work together with these other groups. He said, we understand the nature of this problem and our farmers are going to lose that market. And it sounds like that could be the case if they don't figure out something to do here, especially when it comes to the U.S.-China situation. So Lighthizer is taking that very seriously, it sounds like. And like I said, we will watch for that and see really what comes out of that meeting here at the G20 Summit next week. Since we're talking about China, of course, African swine fever has been running rampant in China. We've now seen it reported in Vietnam, South Africa, China, a couple of other Southeastern Asian countries. Well, we saw a new country announce it this week for the first time, and that is the country of Laos, which is... For those of you that don't have a map handy, Laos is located just north of Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, kind of southwest of China, and it had its first outbreak or confirmed outbreak of the African swine fever disease in the southern province of Saravan. And this was according to the World Organization for Animal Health. The area that was infected was, like I said, in the southern province of Saravan, so it's likely been spread here from the country of Vietnam or Cambodia, since those countries do butt up to Laos on the southern edge. This first outbreak here in the country was pretty small. I believe it was just seven confirmed hogs dead so far, but this is, as we're seeing, starting to spread really pretty rampantly here, and some folks think it's just a matter of time before the African swine fever comes to the United States, and it seems the USDA is trying to plan ahead for that to some extent. But they are also teaming up to take on feral swine. The USDA released a statement today discussing just that. They said feral swine carry a myriad of diseases that affect livestock people and wildlife, one of those being, of course, folks, African swine fever. The USDA said that they believe those invasive species can be destructive and impact agriculture at least a billion dollars a year. And total damage nationwide is estimated at more than $2 billion annually. That's not including if we saw African swine fever come to the United States. And they said feral swine have been detected in at least 37 states. So this is clearly a nationwide problem. Congress has given the agency $20 million dollars since 2014 to fix this, and the 2018 Farm Bill has strengthened that effort, now allocating $75 million over the next five years to be used to eradicate the feral swine and control that program going on. I think this really has been pushed, though, folks, because of what has been going on uh, over in those other countries talking about African swine fever um, a foot and mouth disease is another one there, and a lot of those diseases are spread by feral swine. So it sounds like USDA is trying to be a little bit more proactive here in creating programs to address that head-on before we see those diseases really touch the shores of the United States. Well, it seems like the ERS 
NIFA relocation issue is still not coming to an end here. We saw the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association, or the AAEA, release a report calling into question Secretary Purdue and the USDA's claims last week made that by moving these services to Kansas City, it would save taxpayers about $300 million over 15 years The group putting together this report said the relocation would actually cost taxpayers money. They're estimating between $37 million and $128 million, saying that after you take into account the value of future research that could be lost due to veteran economists fleeing the agencies. So I guess it's uh, not catering to those veterans in in the uh, research Agencies, they're saying that those folks will not want to go to Kansas City. That's been made pretty evident here. They're saying by losing those folks, we're actually going to end up costing taxpayers money. So essentially, it looks like the USDA's analysis has two omissions that undermine its finding, including no measure of how high the turnover rate would be if the agencies do head to Kansas City. That looks like it's really being the biggest point of contention here between the USDA's analysis and this new AAEA analysis of heading to Kansas City or not. So we probably won't know what's going to happen there for quite some time either. May not see that actually come to fruition, but something we will keep an eye on. And last piece of news for today, it sounds like folks are finally starting to feel some optimism as well as some bankers feeling some optimism. We saw in May the rural Main Street index take a dip, going below growth neutral, but this index is back above growth neutral here in the month of June. This is a monthly survey, of course, put together of bank CEOs in a 10-state Midwest region, and for June of 2019, it's at 53.2%, which in May it was down to 48.5%. This is the sixth time in the past seven months that the index has risen above growth neutral, so it sounds like folks are starting to feel a little more optimistic here. Of course, largely due to higher agricultural commodity prices, and we've seen finally some rebuilding efforts from recent floods, but overall bankers are the ones feeling a little more comfortable with, I guess, where we're at in rural America, and unfortunately, bankers often run the pocketbooks of many farmers and have some uh, abilities, obviously, to pull the rugs out from underneath folks. So if we can keep the banker happy, maybe we can keep running one more year. But uh, not to make light of that or anything. But we definitely saw some positivity in the commodity markets today. Green across the screen in the grains. And the livestock markets, a little bit of red, probably reacting to the uh, new sentiment in the grain markets. But before we get to our commodity markets, let's take a quick minute to hear from our fellow podcaster, Ray Bohax, in today's Hot Rod Farmer Minute. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I'm Ray Bohax from the Farm Machinery Digest website and the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. A typical scenario goes like this. An engine in a farm machine or truck needs a new radiator and is beginning to run hot. 
you shop around and find a wide discrepancy in price and decide on the least expensive replacement. You are proud of your wise financial decision. That is, until it runs just as hot or even slightly hotter than with the old radiator. How can this be? Is there something else wrong with the engine? It can't be the radiator, right? The job of the liquid is to cool the engine, and it is the radiator's task to cool the liquid. To do this properly, it must be designed for the heat rejection of the engine. Just because it fits in place has nothing to do with how it performs. A radiator consists of the tanks, headers, and core. It is the core that has the most influence on its efficiency. Heated coolant is circulated through the core. There are small quantities of coolant travel through the tubes and that have fins attached to them. This is where the heat transfer from the liquid to the air occurs. The design of the tubes and fins are paramount to this. Specifications such as fin density per square inch, the size and shape of the tubes and fins, along with the material used to attach the fins all add up to making the radiator efficient. The best choice is to buy a factory replacement. It will have the heat rejection requirement for that engine. There are excellent aftermarket brands that produce the same heat rejection as the factory unit, but are usually not the lowest cost option. They make the sale, but your engine pays the price. Our markets are sponsored by our partners over there at the Zaner Group in Chicago. Give any one of them a call today. Ted, Brian, Matt, Zaner, all great folks. And they can help you put together a marketing plan or some strategies to figure out how to take advantage of times like this when we're finally seeing some volatility, volatility added back into the markets. Give them a call today at 312-277-0050. As mentioned here, jumping over to look at the grains markets first, lots of positive sentiment about this weather, continued weather markets, starting off with the July corn contract, finished up nine cents on the day to end at four fifty even, the December new crop contract up seven and three quarters cents to end at four sixty one. Soybeans were definitely the winner for today with the July soybean contract adding twelve and a quarter cent, tickles at nine fifteen and a half. The November up 12 and a quarter to close at 9.41 even. In the Chicago wheat pits, the July contract up four and a quarter cent to close at 5.26 and a half. The December up five and a half cents to close at 5.41 and a half. As mentioned, livestock markets didn't have quite a pretty, quite as pretty of a picture today. The June live cattle contract closed down 32 and a half cents to end at 108.17 and a half. The October shed 52.5 cents to close at 105.57. In the feeder cattle markets, the August contract closed down $1.82.5 to end at 134.70. The October cut $1.60 to close at 135.82.5. African swine fever and Laos did not spur any excitement in the lean hog markets for today, with the July contract shedding $2.37.5 to end at 79.25. The October down a dollar seventy-two and a half to close at seventy-five seventy-two and a half, and of course rounding out our markets with the dairy class three milk futures, a little bit of positivity today. The June contract closed up a penny to end at sixteen twenty-nine. The July up twenty cents to close at seventeen fifteen. Without further ado, let's kick it over to my conversation I had with Dr. Rob Myers about this new cover crop research. 
We had a new report come out from the USDA joint with the SAR program, and to dissect that report for us today, we've got Dr. Rob Myers, who is a regional director of extension programs for the NCR SARE, as well as University of Missouri. First of all, Rob, for, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Glad to be with you. So before we get into this this report that was launched just the other day, tell us a little bit about SARE and what that program is and how you guys work with the USDA in things like dissecting cover crop value. You bet. Well, we're a USDA program that provides both grants and education programs on different aspects of um, farming with more stewardship or more sustainably. And we're one of the most farmer-oriented USDA programs in that we have grants directly for farmers, but also any of the projects we fund, if they're at a university or an agency, we require farmer involvement. So we're always thinking about how can we help farmers be more successful with their farm operations, both economically and from a stewardship standpoint. So cover crops certainly fit into that. Absolutely, absolutely they do. And a lot of we've seen a big shift here over the last five, ten, fifteen years of growers now looking at increasing cover crops into their operations. I don't want to talk about necessarily the benefits of cover crops, but you guys have done a really interesting study here over the last what was it, five years. Can you walk us through kind of the economic and, and yield impacts you've seen from growers introducing cover crops into their operations? Yeah, so there's definitely been a lot of questions about how do cover crops really impact a farm's financial bottom line. And there have been kind of some local uh, attempts to evaluate that, but we felt there really hadn't been more of a national picture, uh, especially for corn and soybeans more broadly. And we also kind of wanted to look at different management scenarios, like if you're either grazing cover crops or maybe you've got soil compaction or particular weed issues, how all those things factor into the economics. So we started with some survey data that came from farmer surveys that were done over a five-year period going back to 2012 and up to 2017. And we had about, from that survey, which uh, usually had over a thousand farmers responding, we had about 500 of those farms giving us yield data. So we took that yield data over a five-year period and then we broke it down by the number of years of cover crop use to see how that impacted yield. So this was really the first uh, large-scale data set where we could look and say, if you've grown cover crops for a year, what does that do for a yield? Versus if you've grown them for three or five years, what does that do for yield? So that was a big part of the analysis. So were you guys going out and recruiting farmers to transition some makers into cover crops, or were these already growers who were utilizing cover crops maybe a year, two years, five years in? This was uh, not an attempt to recruit people to use cover crops. We were just surveying farmers who were already using them, and the survey did include some other farmers not yet using them, but for the yield data, it was it was people that were already using them and had been doing it for varying lengths of time. Some had just been doing it for a year or two. Some had been doing it for for five years or longer. And what we saw was uh, kind of like people might expect is that the longer people use cover crops, the more they saw a yield benefit. So the benefits were, were relatively minor in the first year or two of use. Um, but then as you start to get into longer-term use, uh, like by year five, soybeans were seeing on average a 5% yield increase from cover crops. 
and corn was seeing on average about a 3% uh, yield increase over after five years of use. Now that was kind of in more normal uh, rainfall conditions. If we have a drought conditions like we had in 2012, then the yield impacts were quite a bit larger from using cover crops, 10% or more in that year. How do you counter then, or, or what would you suggest or think that the results would be if you had included this year in the cover crop study, <laughs> since this one is kind of a very abnormal year? Yes. Well, we're going to do another year of the survey, I think, this fall to kind of try to see uh, what kind of impacts we had. You know, it's interesting. I've talked to quite a few farmers using cover crops, and I can't say that this is a large pattern yet because I don't have enough uh, farmer information. But from some of the ones I talked to, they were able to either plant earlier than their neighbors where they had been doing cover crops and no-till, or they were not delayed at least. And they were generally also seeing fewer weed issues because people were having trouble getting out to even spray their fields for early season weed control. So both from the standpoint of timely planting and for early season weed control, I think we're we're seeing uh, not only in some cases positives, but certainly no negatives uh, from this year with the cover crops. And then the other thing we've heard from a few places is that uh, the water that was standing maybe in conventional fields where there's been a lot of tillage uh, seemed to go down a little faster on fields that had cover crops and no-till because of better internal drainage uh, with root channels and better aggregate soil structures. So so it would be nice to, to have a better survey on what happened this year. But so far, anecdotally, there's some positive information coming in. Absolutely. And I think the other question a lot of growers have, since we're nearing planting windows again for soybeans, we've already passed it, of course, for corn acres, but there are still a lot of growers that haven't been able to get all of their fields planted or are maybe considering taking prevent plant acres. Is this a good year to maybe look at transitioning some of those conventional acres that they would be planting corn, soybeans, and wheat on right now to planting cover crops? And if so, what would the benefit of that be, especially this year when they may not be planting anything anyways? Yeah, if they just can't get in to plant their cash crops, I would certainly encourage them to look at a cover crop instead of leaving a field idle. First of all, that cover crop is going to help suppress some weeds, so there can be some savings right away there and not having to use herbicides if you've got some cover crops out there. If you had applied a fertilizer, um, the cover crop can help take up that fertilizer and hold it until the next cropping season, depending on which cover crops you're using. But one of the things we really have noticed in past years when we've had flooded conditions is there's something called a fallow syndrome, where let's say you've had a a field that's been flooded for a couple months or you just couldn't plant anything on it, that you get some death of soil organisms, particularly like mycorrhizal fungi, and then you go back the next year and you plant a crop like corn and where that field has been fallow, and it just does not do as well as it normally has. Maybe it looks phosphorus deficient early. That may not happen in every situation, but it's happened enough in the past that agronomists have started to call that the fallow syndrome. And we know if we keep some living roots in the soil, that that keeps those mycorrhizal fungi alive. And then when we go back to plant our corn or other crop next year, 
it'll help get that crop off to a good start. So there's definitely a variety of reasons, and that's not even talking about maybe grazing or haying, which is another <laughs> need or benefit that the cover crops could provide on prevent plant ground. Well, absolutely. Let's talk about that here just a little bit. We've seen um, the USDA make some announcements now that they're going to allow grazing on cover crop acres earlier this year and on those prevented plant acres. What does grazing cover crops do for the overall health of, of that ground or that soil? Well, we are finding that if you can uh, not only grow a cover crop, but, but uh, do a good job of grazing it, that that can be very beneficial for soil biology. The urine and manure and saliva from the cattle or other livestock can help stimulate the soil biology. And so there's some evidence, and we do need more research, but there's some evidence that if you're grazing a cover crop, that's one of the fastest ways to improve soil health and maybe even increase soil organic matter over time. So if there's an opportunity to hay or graze, regardless of whether it's a prevent plant field or just a regular cover crop situation, I would certainly encourage farmers to look at it. And they may say, well, I don't have my own cattle. Well, maybe a neighbor has some cattle and they would be willing to pay a fee to come in and, and use that ground and set up some temporary electric fencing. And that's one thing I would note is a lot of people are doing this without putting up permanent fencing. They're finding they can get by with uh, temporary electric fencing and uh, temporary watering systems. So you're right that the Risk Management Agency did announce some new rules. Those just came out. So before, if you were going to plant a cover crop after a field that was declared prevent plant, you had to wait to hay or graze that until after November 1st. They've just changed that rule as of today for this year only so that farmers can hay or graze after September 1st. So that'll be a real benefit uh, to some farmers, especially if they want to plant some warm season cover crops and, and graze them early in the fall. Yeah, this, like we've said, this year is just an abnormal year. So it's nice that the agency is responding to some of those real life situations that many producers are facing. Rob, when you look at the cost of adding cover crops during times when producers have been in such low commodity price cycles about the last five or six years, how do you counter that argument that cover crops can be expensive and, and maybe producers aren't ready to take that step? What's, what's your argument to counter that and saying, hey, look, here's why you should be adding that to your production costs? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that's a definite concern by farmers who've not yet used cover crops. I just, you know, I'm not making much money now. Why should I throw 20 or $30 into cover crop seed? Well, first thing I would say is that we have ways that we can make those cover crops pay more quickly. Um, we just talked about haying and grazing. They can provide potentially a pretty nice financial return from haying or grazing them because of the forage value. But let's just put that aside and say you don't have that opportunity. We are also finding that if you've got a situation uh, with herbicide-resistant weeds or just in this prevent plant situation, you know, otherwise you'd maybe be going out and spraying that field a couple times, the cover crop might pay for itself just with that uh, reduced herbicide cost. Um, we found with herbicide-resistant weeds that normally we've got farmers maybe making a second post-emerge application or using a more expensive residual chemistry. Uh, you still are going to need herbicides if you're using a cover crop to control weeds, but you can 
often get by with a less expensive overall herbicide program. So that can be a, a factor that can make them pay more quickly. Um, we also found with compaction, if you've got compaction, that the cover crops can start paying for themselves within a couple of years in compacted soil situations. So there's kind of a variety of scenarios. The last one I'd mention is just uh, with incentive payments available through NRCS nationwide, and then many states also offering incentive payments. That's certainly something to look at. And in states that have prevent plant situations uh, like Nebraska, Minnesota, Missouri just declared the other day, uh, there, these rules vary by state, but there's some special equip signups this summer uh, for cover crop use on those flooded or prevent plant fields. Robert, it seems like there are a lot of benefits to cover crops when you look at grazing, soil degradation, soil health, roots, etc. Do you see cover crops then serving as some sort of silver bullet at some point in the future here? Or is it just still a wait-and-see game? <laughs> well, you know, I think they can be a silver bullet for somebody that has a very specific issue. Like I said, if they're having real compaction issues or herbicide-resistant weeds, that uh, can be part of the tool in their toolbox to, to help address that issue. Uh, otherwise, I often use the analogy of a Swiss Army knife, that cover crops are very unique and that they provide so many versatile benefits for us. Um, there are relatively few other agronomic things we can do that can provide a whole set of benefits. So if we can use that cover crop, we're not just helping with weeds, but we're also helping with nutrients and compaction. We're helping with that long-term soil health. We're helping definitely in dry years and maybe in, in wet years. And so you're kind of doing something that's making your farming system more resilient. And as we get more unusual weather, whether it's too dry or too wet, uh, that is a big plus for kind of uh, being another type of way we ensure the success of the farm is, is by having that healthier soil that will be more resilient going forward. All right. Starting from the ground up to fix those plants, it seems, is, is commonly the uh, solution. Rob, before I let you go, the report we've been referencing here, When Do Cover Crops Pay? How can folks, if they, the way they would like to read that in depth for themselves, how can they access that? Yeah, the simplest, well, they can just do a search for um, When Do Cover Crops Pay? That'll probably pull it up. Or they can go to the SARE website, which is sare.org. And it's right on the homepage of that website uh, currently. So that's a free publication to read. It goes into several different scenarios for how long cover crops might take to pay. On average, we said it typically be about three years under normal conditions. But if you had special circumstances that they can pay for themselves in a year or two. And I do want to add uh, that one thing we kind of tried to point out is there are other decisions that we make, like trying to decide to lime a field or buy a new piece of farm equipment, where the payoff may not be in one year. It may be a two, three, or four-year payoff. And I think uh, you have to kind of look at cover crops like that, that it's an investment for a multi-year period that's going to provide long-term returns. So it can pay off in the short term, but it certainly will pay off in the long term. Absolutely. Changing that uh, that mind thinking, mind over matter thinking, Dr. Rob Myers, thank you so much for filling us in on this report. Quite happy to. Thanks for having me. 
All right, folks. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Myers. I encourage you to check out that report for yourself. A little lengthy, but there's a lot of good information about other producers using cover crops. Really the nitty gritty. If you are research minded and want to read that report for yourself, you can, of course, find the full technical analysis at www.sare.org. You can also go to globalagnetwork.com if you need to catch up on some of your podcasts or maybe want to listen to some of the other podcasts within our network. I would highly encourage you guys right now to look at the Premier Podcast, sponsored by Premier Crop Systems, talking about things like soil health, how do you involve the economic side and combine that with your agronomic side. Really good stuff that we've got going on there, as well as some other really great podcasts, depending on the space you have interest in. Well, tomorrow it should be a pretty normal day again here on the Agnews Daily Podcast. Be joined again by Mike. But for today, I'm going to let you guys go. Thank <laughs> you.